Welcome to another extraordinary archive from Restorative Justice on the Rise, which is an ongoing international radio webcast series co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance and focuses on education, dialogue, as well as uh, mobilization tools and stories from the field. This archive from October 20th, 2013 features very deep conversation with Taya Sepanuk. Taya is the founding uh, director of the Theater of Witness, which is a model of performance that gives voice to those who have been marginalized, forgotten, or in, in, are invisible in society. Her work is an incredible contribution to our world. Please find out more about Theater of Witness by going to theaterofwitness.org. Please also find more archives and the upcoming schedule for restorative justice on the rise at www.restorativejusticeontherise.com. Thank you and enjoy this conversation with Taya Sepanuk. Good afternoon, good evening, or good morning to you all, and such a warm welcome. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach. We're tuned in to Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is a very special edition today, featuring an extraordinary human being who I'm just really thrilled to have with us today, all the way from Ireland. And uh, I will be introducing her in just a moment. Her work precedes her name and her depth of experience. And I'm sure many of you are already familiar with her. But uh, before we do that, just again, welcome to you. And as many of you know, this series is ongoing. And oftentimes, we will have these special edition telecasts. And uh, we're, we're building a new website as well. Uh, restorativejusticeontherise.com and we're launching a podcast at some point this fall including archives from over a hundred folks in the field now that we're in our third season of this series. So please go ahead and, and cruise on over to restorativejusticeontherise.com. You can see a sampling of some of our archives there at this moment. You can either stream them online or download them onto your hard drive. Um, this is uh, the idea being an open source platform, not only here in the live telecouncils and casts, but also uh, for your access in providing education, tools, and inspired action surrounding restorative justice and much beyond that. As many of you know, we go into many different themes in this series that are related to peace building and social healing. I also would like to thank the Peace Alliance for their co-sponsorship of this series. And uh, for all of you who are active, participant, active participants in the series, we invite you to pass along this information. Invite folks to come along and join us, ask questions, and get involved in the dialogue. So without further ado, we're going to spend this hour together with someone very close and special to my heart, although we've never met. I'm familiar with her work because of the fact that a mutual colleague of ours, James O'D, and also Dr. Judith, Judith Thompson, 
visited the Theater of Witness, and of course our guest, honored guest today is Taya Sepinuk. Now I'd like to just say uh, a couple things up front about some of the things that um, Taya is, is doing right now with her work. Most currently, one of those things is a very recently uh, launched book as well as uh, a new play, new piece that just launched this past Thursday evening, which she's going to share a lot more about. Um, just to give you a little further detail, she founded and is also the director of Theater of Witness, which is a model of performance that gives voice to those who have been marginalized, forgotten, or are invisible in society. For the past 25 years, she has been creating and producing Theater of Witness projects with prisoners and their families, survivors and perpetrators of abuse, refugees, immigrants, elders, and those who have lived through war. Her work has not only um, been based in Northern Ireland, or excuse me, in Ireland, but uh, has taken her to Poland, Northern Ireland, where she just completed her third production, which I just mentioned a moment ago at the Playhouse in Derry, Londonderry, creating original theater of witness with ex-combatants, members of the security forces, survivors, witnesses, and those living with the intergenerational legacy of the Troubles. I just want to mention, there's a lot more that we can, can say about Taya, but uh, she did receive a very, very pres prestigious uh, recognition for this important work by the Philadelphia Human Rights Group um, she received the award for arts and culture from the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations, a local hero award from Bank of America, as well as cultural arts award from Women's Way and the Mayor's Commission on Women. I also want to mention she has a long-time meditation practice which informs all of her work and her life. And uh, finally, that new book, Theater of Witness, Finding the Medicine in Stories of Suffering, Transformation, and Peace is now available, just launched earlier this year. You can buy it at Amazon.com. And we'll talk more about all of this, and I'm sure much more than that, um, as we go throughout our hour. And so, Taya, um, it's truly an honor and a delight uh, combined to have you with us today from so far away and yet so close. Uh, thank you here. so much. The only thing that feels funny is I'm in the dark now because it's it's nighttime in Northern Ireland, <laughs> and I know for you it's daytime in the morning. But thank you so much. Well, thank you for for taking time out of this very robust week that you've had in uh, this first uh, in excuse me in the launch of your new piece, your new play mm -hmm. on Thursday. But before we go into that. Why don't we start out by frameworking your journey a little bit and telling us a little bit about what brought you into this particular field, which is so powerful to me I just and yeah. to many others. Well, let me, maybe I should first describe a little bit what Theater of Witness is in a little bit more detail and then sure. I'll talk about how I got there. Right. Um, I really look at Theater of Witness as a way to bring people to have a communal experience of bearing witness often bearing witness to um, stories that are literally unbearable or um, the, the depth of human suffering, but mostly looking at where the medicine is in those stories, 
where is the, the place of transformation, where is the place of hope, where is the place of resilience, and how can a group of people come together and um, collectively listen, I always like to say, with the ears of our heart, um, past, past judgment, past opinion, um, to listening to the truth of somebody's story in life. And I think that a lot of the social issues that get brought up in the projects are easier for people to hear because they're, they're coming from um, the, the people who are performing themselves, not mitigated through actors. They're you know, really on stage seeing a refugee from Cambodia or a man serving a life sentence or uh, somebody that was blown up in a car bomb as a child. And they're sharing their own stories and you, you know, you feel the depth of the rawness and the honesty and the vulnerability. Um, and there's something very, very powerful about that. So that is the nature of the work. And um, it's actually now 27 years that I've been doing it. Um, and it's, in a way, I, you know, I call it my work, but it has really been my life. It's been the way I get to know the world, the way I get to walk with people, to commune with people, to um, to know people in such a profound soul level that I never possibly could have ever known um, in my very privileged upbringing that I had growing up. I got into the work, um, originally I had been a dancer and taught at Small Westmore College in Pennsylvania for many years and loved dancing, but um, at once I had my children I knew I wasn't going to continue to dance and I never felt as a choreographer that I was actually good enough to express anything about the human condition. And it was sort of by accident that I made it one of my you know, last dance pieces that used an audio tape of my grandfather, who was 88 years old, talking about his great-grandson being born, which was my son. And we had Daniel at three months old laughing. And I put the two of them together and um, made a dance to that, to that uh, audio. And what was interesting to me is I was so much more compelled by the story of my grandfather and my son than I was in the dance that I decided I would then pursue creating a theater piece about aging and just wanting to understand what, what is it really like. At that point, I was in my 30s. Um, and so I got a group of older people together, and I sort of invented the technique. I didn't have a name for it, but we were doing a lot of interviewing, talking, sharing, imagery, meditation, drawing, dancing, singing. And from that, scripted the piece and worked with a composer. And the, the people themselves became the performers. And I remember being so moved, um, especially by this woman, Kate Wright, who at that point, when I first started working with her, when she was 83. And I remember asking her, you know, tell me um, what what is this about aging that is you know important to you? And she said, well, it's it's about the growing, you know, growing. Maybe I said, what is what is growing old about? And she said, growing old is about the growing. And she had joined the Peace Corps in her later years and um, was this beaming light. And I thought, wow, I, I get to be around these people that I wouldn't normally associate with. I wouldn't know their stories. I wouldn't listen to them cry. So that was the first project. And then I did a piece about racial and cultural diversity with teenagers. And then the third project, I had I was in the middle of getting a divorce and 
was really dealing with personal issues of what what was home and where did I belong and who was family and decided to explore homelessness. And I had a cast of actually 18 people, which I'll never do again. But there was uh, a family in political sanctuary from El Salvador, uh, Sonia and Luis and their three children, and uh, two refugees from Vietnam, and a 73-year-old man who had been living on the streets, and people who had grown up in the projects and were living in the projects. So it was a very diverse group. And um, that that sealed the deal for me. I think that, that at the end of that project, which was called Home Tales in 1991, I said, this is my life's work. And I gave up my, my job at Swarthmore and decided to just devote myself to this and then decided I would call it Theater of Witness as a way to distinguish it from theater. And, you know, in a way, I, I don't even like to think that we have audiences. I like to think that we have witnesses who come who come to bear witness. Mm. That's right. And so, uh, so at, at the point where you um, quit your work with Swartmar, what informed your choice to, uh, I'm just assuming that that was somewhere around the same time that you may have relocated to? No, no, I was still in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. I was raising, raising two young children and um, co-parenting with their father and um, really, uh, took a big leap. I, you know, I, I gave up everything at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just, I just knew I had to do this, and, and I couldn't hold on to the security of this wonderful job that everybody else in the universe wanted. Um, but I knew I was huh. done. You know, you know, you know when you're done with something. And um, took a leap and didn't know. In one way, I didn't know if I'd be able to earn a living, um, but in another way, I actually had complete faith because the first three pieces had been received so well and it felt like this was a spiritual quest and, and I just needed to go. So I did it. And work came. I was very lucky. I got mm-hmm. lots of commissions at the beginning and I got to work with one of the first projects was with a group of uh, six Vietnamese teenagers who had all come over by boat um, from Vietnam and their stories were extraordinary and they they were dealing with a lot of um, racism in in Philadelphia. And they also had been uh, picked up illegally by the police because there had been a racially motivated killing and they were seeking the death penalty for six uh, Vietnamese refugees and then they were therefore picking up all, all the other young refugees. So there was a, it, it came at a very important time when trial was happening and these young men uh, so wanted to tell their stories and it was an amazing, amazing experience. Mm. It just kept going from there. It was mm. wonderful. Well, you know, I have to say what's so inspiring to me about you and this program and uh, although it's not the same thing, um, it's it's a related uh, window into the world and I'm referring to an interview I did earlier this year with Sebastian Younger whose dear friend Tim Hetherington uh, who was an image maker and humanitarian was tragically killed yeah. and his core work was really to use um, uh, unlikely forms of uh, exp- expression to bring people together Meaning, meaning he would bring, uh, at one point he brought uh, uh, Liberian soccer players together with, um, 
with the United Kingdom soccer team and those mm-hmm. cultures came together. So he, he was very interested in sport mm-hmm. and media bringing together our world. And somehow I feel so strongly um, the similarities here in many ways, although I've never, I've never seen uh, a production of the Theater of Witness. I can only imagine its power in, um, in ways more than we can understand. And so that brings me to a question for you of, okay, so we know that in the human experience when a conflict, uh, whether it's, you know, whatever range it is on the, the scale of violence occurs, we become um, tenants of, of a house of needs, of, of particular needs uh, in response to what, what occurs, what, no matter where we are in the play of, of that conflict. And how does theater of witness, in all of your years uh, of witnessing the theater of witness, of producing it, how does it go deeper than our more traditional systems? What, what does it provide people, in your view, um, that helps them to move beyond uh, the trauma? Well, I think there are a few things. One is I, I'm always looking for what I call the medicine in the story. And I think when people find the medicine and are able to reflect that in a public way, there's such an empowerment. And I'm, I'll describe maybe a project that I did, the last project I did in Philadelphia before coming to Northern Ireland. And there had been uh, many, many uh, murders of young, especially black uh, men in Philadelphia, sometimes called the murder capital of the U.S. And um, there was a particular one of a young nine-year-old boy named Fahim Childs who was killed in the schoolyard um, by, the cross, by crossfire. And I, I knew at that point that, that I, I just was compelled that I had to do something. And I went on a march that, that uh, was instigated uh, through some of the worst drug areas of, of Philadelphia. And it, it was run by mothers whose children were murdered. And everywhere you went, there were people holding these signs of, with beautiful photographs of their murdered children and the sorrow in his mother's eyes. And also everywhere you went, um, everybody was black. Um, there were very few white people, and I, I had this sense, like, why wasn't the whole city up in arms? Why wasn't everybody um, feeling like these were our children? And I decided, well, the only thing I know how to do is make a theater of witness piece. And so at that point, I, I brought together mothers whose children had been murdered with with mothers whose children had committed murder mm. and and men who had been in prison um, both the two men had done really horrendous violent horrible things one had been in prison for more than 40 years and i remember talking to the victim advocate in pennsylvania when i was looking for people to meet and she was saying oh you can't bring mothers whose children had been murdered together with ex-offenders you know it's or mothers whose children you know, has committed murder. And I knew she was thinking way too small. And I just thought, she's wrong. You know, I will find the people. And I met this extraordinary woman, Victoria Green, whose son, Amir, had been murdered. And she and her two daughters and I met in her living room where they sobbed for 
at least an hour. And she spoke about going to the trial of the young man who had killed her son. And she said when the, when the foreman called out life, his mother screamed. And she said that was the same scream that came out of me when I found out Amir had been murdered. And she said nobody won, you know. Um, and she felt compassion for the for the mother and even for the, the man who had killed her son. So I knew then, you know, I was just filled with chills, and I thought, this woman has the heart and the capacity to be in this room. So she and her daughter were the first two people that, that I chose for the cast. And then I, um, this extraordinary man who I've since worked with quite a few times, Hakeem Ali, who had, who had um, spent 40 years in both state and federal time, and another young man who had spent 15 years in prison, and then uh, two mothers whose children had been in prison for murder, and other uh, mothers whose children had died. And it was extraordinary, uh, just extraordinary. The love in the room, I, I don't know how to say what happened, but I remember, you know, we took turns letting people, you know, I interviewed them all at great length first and explained who else was going to be in the group, and we did some, you know, setting of, of safety and how to be in the group. And then each time that we met, I let whoever wanted to tell their story to say it and however they would. And I was always interested in how they would tell it differently or the same to how they had told me privately. And when Hakeem had told me about having his hands around somebody's neck and have them pleading for their life, and he didn't heed their pleas, I didn't know if he would say that in the group in front of Victoria and Altavitz, but he did. And all of us were weeping. And Altavitz, his brother Amir had been murdered, went up to him mm. and asked him if she could hug him. And she said, thank you for saying what the man who murdered my brother could never say. And I knew at that moment we were in another territory. We were in soul territory. We were in healing. We were in redemption. And we actually called the piece uh, Beyond the Walls, The Road to Redemption and um, wrote this extraordinary song. Um, you know, there's a thousand miles on the road to redemption. You never have to walk alone. If you're tired, there's a place at the table. The gates are open. You can always come home. And um, they came home to each other. And after one performance, I remember Ruben, one of the men in the performance who had been in prison for 15 years, broke open after the show and just sobbed and sobbed. And the mothers whose children had been murdered held him in their breasts and rocked him. I mean, rocked him like like a mother rocking, you know, the most beloved child. And that was healing of a magnitude that you can't, you know, I don't even have words for mm-hmm. it. And then every time we would perform, people would be in sobbing and they'd be on their feet and they would go up to the performers and just thank them and thank them. And we, we toured that throughout the city for two years, um, you know, to huge standing ovations. And what was one of the most amazing things was in a lot of the communities, people brought their young children because they didn't have babysitters. And, uh, you know, this really wasn't a piece for young children. But, uh, but Victoria, who at the end of the show talked about being the voice for all black boys 
who are human and whose lives were not respected. You know, and she said, I stand for all of them with my head held high. And she would, you know, scream it out with her arms up to the heavens. And um, all these young, young boys would come up to her after the show and just say, Miss Victoria, I'm, I'm not going to be a bad boy because I don't want to get into trouble because I don't want my mother to have to cry like you've cried. And I thought, wow, this actually is a prevention piece. I, you know, and I wasn't even thinking of it in that level. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's using <laughs> imagery, using truth, um, listening to men who've served life sentences, deeply apologize. Um, we brought victims into into the prison when I did a show called Living with Life. And, um, you know, one of one of them stood up afterwards and said, you know, one of my brother was killed on the streets of Philadelphia. And today, for the first time, I have compassion for you men. And, you know, I forgive you. And then when I worked at Greaterford Prison and we, we brought people in, um, we actually brought Beyond the Walls into the prison. And um, I remember one of the men standing up and saying, you know, I thought I had done work. I thought I had... I had learned to to take accountability for what I did, but tonight, after hearing your mother's, I I can only say from the bottom of my heart, I am so sorry, and on behalf of all of us here, please accept our apologies. I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't get better than that for me. You know. Well, I have tears streaming down my face. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you, but. Um... I I just feel moved to share uh, with everyone. Quite a few folks um, probably have heard on various interviews me mention that my mother almost murdered a child in a Mm -hmm. severe psychotic episode, and that was almost 20 years ago, and she continues to be in prison to this day. And part of, as you might imagine, my own journey has been to um, elevate the work in restorative justice and beyond and and creative, powerful ways like you're describing for everyone to be heard because we are all human beings and we all have a story. We all have, in fact, quite a greater story than what we may even realize. And it even spans out, it appears, much beyond our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's called intergenerational yeah. and yeah. ancestral. And so um, your sharing is just making me cry because I feel, um, I feel so much compassion and I always have and concern for the victim and her family. Uh, in my mother's case, and yet um, to this day, there's just a very clear signal that um, nothing other than fear and uh, misunderstanding and hatred, perhaps, I don't know. Um, you know, there, there's a real wall there that has never been able to um, be gently, respectfully, and carefully dissolved in any way. And so systems that are um, able to provide platforms, you know, uh, for 
there to be any kind of, of connection and understanding of cause and effect, um, including in my own family. You know, we really could use some great uh, dialogue and conversation mm-hmm. around how this has affected even my immediate family. And uh, all of this has um, not been supported, first of all, for the victim and her family, who is now a young adult, and uh, for, the, um, uh, for the community, the neighborhood, for uh, you know, the fact that my mother will re-enter society. And mm-hmm. what, what then? You know, there, there are things that need to be addressed. And um, so I, just, I wanted to really just share mm-hmm. that today with everyone, with you, Taya, and why I'm so moved by this work. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, you know, obviously not just because of my own situation, but certainly I can see how inc- you know, incredibly transformative something like this could be even for, my, for myself and for, for my immediate um, stakeholder community. I think, I think sometimes we need to find the people that, that are able to express the light, the transformation, and they become models or seeds. Mm. And, you know, in the case of, of, of the victim of your mother, from your mother, you know, she may never be ready. Right. But you don't know, you know, and um, to have people be able, you just never know when the tipping point comes for somebody. But I think it's, it's so important to hear the stories with tenderness and compassion and love, including for people's walls. Um, you know, when we were working with on Beyond the Walls, you know, uh, the, there was a section called The Mother's Lament. And the mothers all expressed how their grief worked through them in completely different ways. And for some of them, it was absolute rage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there needed to be room for that. Just always room for the truth, you know, just the truth. But, of course, these were all extraordinary people because they were ready to be in this room together. Mm-hmm. We also, um, actually, from from doing Beyond the Walls, I started to work at Greaterford quite a bit. I was working with some extraordinary lifers who have really come up with a model of positive transformation, and we've been wondering what we wanted to do together. And I had been in an inner city school. Um, one of my colleagues had been working there and had realized that the girls weren't talking, but the boys were talking. So I I went in to meet with four girls who I had never met. And we were in a library, and I asked them how violence or incarceration had affected them. And within literally a minute, they were all in tears telling me about lynchings and rapes mm. and murders and you know, family members in prison. It was just, it was just devastating. And I went back. To, I was, I went to Greater for that night. And one of the men asked me, you know, what I had done that day. And I told him about what the girls had said. And he said, "That is the legacy that we left our community, and that that is our fault." And I said, "That's the piece we're going to make." And so we made a piece uh, called "Holding Up," and it was with children and um, sisters and mothers and wives of prisoners and the prisoners inside. And so it was very complicated because I couldn't, I had to put the children of prisoners on on film because they couldn't come into the prison to perform. Right. 
And then when we performed out of the prison, I had ex-prisoners play the parts of the men inside because the men couldn't come out. But so there was sort of, in a way, two casts. Mm -hmm. But there was, what I remember in particular was this extraordinary 16-year-old girl, Sasha, whose father had been on death row, and his sentence got converted to life. And then he somehow got released, and he died on the streets of, I think, of AIDS. And she... She gave the I'm the most heart rendering testimony about you know that, that you know that you only have one life to live and you have you never know you know when when you, when your time is up and you only get this one chance so you better learn to do it right you know to forgive and to love, to to pick yourself up and to love again and she you know with tears streaming down her face she talked about you know her father never you know, promising her all these things, but, you know, never being able to ever come through with any of it and never even seeing her promise, the promise of her beauty Mm. and love and having her, you know, so many of her friends die. And we used to play this, and then at the end it says, wake up, life is precious, you know. Um, And the men would be in tears on stage watching Sasha because they got the impact they got the impact of what, you know, what their behavior had caused their children, you know, and the the continuing generation of that. And yet these men were so wanting to be part of the solution, and that's what was so thrilling to me. Because I really do think it's people who have gone through the experiences like you and the work that you're doing that can be part of the solution because you know it. You've, you've walked the walk. You've done the work, you know. Well, thank you, and I I would like to say um, how much love and respect I have for um, the process of my mother's victim and for her family, and that I really appreciate you pointing out that she may never be ready. And to me, uh, I accept that, and I understand that, and I, I, I think it's important as it pertains to the field of restorative justice and transformative justice and, uh, you know, whatever uh, name we want to call it, human justice, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that we understand it's, uh, we're not trying to um, force a means to an end. Um, and I love how you said, said that this is a seed, that many of us are paving the way to seed the possibilities uh, as Dominic Barter has often said, it's um, a, a, a container to create possibilities, mm. a safe container for creating conditions for the possibility for moving forward in whatever direction is right for the individual. So I really mean that when I say, uh, you know, to to my mother's victim and to her family that I. Um, really love and accept whatever they need and just I think if anything I just feel sad that they didn't get a chance or haven't yet it seems to really feel like they've gotten their needs met in any way nor nor has my family so um, thus I am committed to offering this continued series (laughs) and its Mm -hmm. subsequent subsequent work including a, a book next year that brings the transcripts together from the many conversations that we've had. And, um, and I, I'd like to say, too, 
um, since we're over halfway through our, our time together, it's just going by so fast, I'd like to encourage folks, if you haven't already visited the website for Theater of Witness, please do so. Um, that website address is theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E of witness.org. Theater uh, of let me actually correct you, Molly. There's two websites. And okay. My U.S.-based website is theater, spelled T-H-E-A-T-E-R, theaterofwitness.org. And that actually has a lot of films on it, including Living with Life and some and Beyond the Walls and Holding Up, which we renamed Shadows. So all Wonderful. those films are, are completely viewable on that website. The theater spelled R-E is the Northern Irish site. I and see. that's about the work I'm doing here. Wonderful. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Um, and I do see that you have some, some videos here on the U.S.-based website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I'd also just again like to mention your book, which is available on Amazon and I'm sure as well as other places, uh, Theater of Witness, Finding the Medicine in Stories of Suffering, Transformation, and Peace. And now, of course, the invitation to our dialogue circle here with us today to press 1 on your telephone keypad from here on out if you'd like to join the conversation. That's just simply by pressing 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're coming in from Skype, just use your Skype pad to dial 1, and that will alert us that you have a question or a comment. Um, so I'll go ahead and take a live question right now. Melanie, welcome so much. You're live. <laughs> wow, I didn't expect to get on so fast. Uh, let me go where the noise background is less. Um, wow, I'm so grateful for this. I, I am um, staying with a woman, um, have been for the past few weeks, who I realize we're in the middle of a miracle, how things are converging relationships. And uh, this is just huge. My interest in restorative justice began um, with horrible divorce in, in Denver and uh, uh, it's how it affects the system. It, when people use courts and attorneys to bully other people, it's just another form of what happened in Washington last last uh, few weeks. So I have a heart for restorative justice and restorative circles and uh, I'm just so grateful for how this piece fits in. Um, I wish I had uh, something else to contribute right this minute, but I just feel so glad and, and, and overwhelmed at the same time to uh, mm. uh, have these pieces be converging and coming together. Um, if you, at any point before the call ends, can point to um, some practitioners, circle practitioners in the Boston area, uh, I'd appreciate it. Thanks so much, and uh, lots of blessings and love to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Melanie. And um, as far as in the Boston area, I'll, I'll let you uh, throw in any ideas you might have there, Taya, but I'll just say that I know of um, quite a few folks up in the, the northeastern part of, um, of, of the Western, <laughs> or of, of the, the United States. I'm, I'm a little out of sorts because of that wonderful sharing. Wow. Um, 
there's so many of them that uh, I guess one of them would be Lauren Abramson at the Community Conferencing Center, uh, and that's in Baltimore, Maryland. So that's sort of in that region. Uh, there's also the New York Peace Institute, which is based in Brooklyn and in the city, New York City. There's uh, additionally restorative circles, um, uh, focus groups, and community groups that have formed in that area. And to find out more about restorative circles, you would just simply go to restorativecircles.org. That's Dominic Barter's work that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Taya, did you have anything else to add there? No, I've, I've been in Northern Ireland for five years now working you know, here with issues of the conflict here. So I, I feel quite out of the U.S. at the moment. Yeah. And another great resource too, Melanie and everyone that's interested, would be to go to Restorative Justice Online. That's operated by the Center for Justice and Reconciliation as well as Prison Fellowship International. And we had the honor of having Lynette Parker on from PFI last year. And actually that, that leads into a question that I'd like to ask Taya about um, what, what Lynette described in what, what, what they do with uh, prisoners and um, victims as well is similar in, in some ways in the sense that uh, I think they call it a surrogate process. And so, for example, in, in, my own in my own situation with my mother and many, many, many others where there may be certain um, members of the stakeholder community that aren't, aren't ready or able now or maybe ever to come into something like this, but that others are, this stakeholder process seems to be, or excuse me, this surrogate process seems to be very effective. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak a little bit more uh, about I, this? I can't because the, the work I'm doing is so particular. I'm making theater of witness and I'm not really in those other circles. You know, I just do the work that I'm doing. I can speak a lot about that, but I can't really, I don't know anything about the surrogate system. Well, you certainly, um, what, uh, what I've heard you describe today um, sounds a lot like uh, the, a powerful surrogate process given that there's um, people who are not the, the direct offender or direct victim together um, working things through. So I just want to point that yeah, out. Correct. <laughs> Although it's in, it's been, I, I guess I'd like to just speak a little bit about the work here in Northern Ireland because the context is so different in the sense I, I think I was when I came from the United States, I was thinking about victim perpetrator and, and a continuum of, you know, that so many perpetrators have been victims and, you know, it's just a cycle of it all. But when I came to Northern Ireland in um, post-conflict time, still a very, very fragile piece, the legacy of, of, you know, 800 or more years of war, but, you know, 30 years of the Troubles, is so ingrained here, and there's this you know, incredibly segregated school system, and people, uh, you know, are walking the streets who had been, um, you know, bombers and arch enemies, and they got released during after the peace process, and there was no, there was no um, any any kind of accountability. It was just people got released, and people just are traumatized. There's 
so much trauma here. And any work that we do touches and ignites almost anybody in the audience. Everybody's impacted. And we've brought together um, a a former British soldier. The British soldiers were absolutely reviled by the Republicans here um, with with Republican ex-prisoners, with a prison governor, which is like a superintendent in the U.S., in one of the most contentious prisons, and bringing people from two opposite paramilitary groups and somebody who had been blown up in a bomb and a detective. And it turned out in this last project that, that I did last year, it, the one, a man who had been a detective who had been to, to the scene of 172 murder investigations. And these are, these are bomb explosions where, you know, he, he was picking up body parts. I mean, just horrendous trauma. Everybody's traumatized. But he got brought together with a man who he had, in fact, um, often interrogated in prison. And uh, it wasn't, you know, that was as close as a direct link as I've had in the work. But it was quite, quite amazing because everybody I brought together really should have been arch enemies in a place that is still completely fraught. And uh, it was all men, and it was just extraordinary. Um, how they be, they developed a deep deep brotherhood in the sense that I think what it is is in a way enlarging the lens, not like oh you you are from this side and you are from this side and you murdered my you know my people and you did this and you did that, but it was like look at this whole horrible catastrophe. We all hurt and we all hurt each other. We're all part of this thing, and mm. how how can we heal from this? is really where to go. Um, and it's very, very complex here. And um, so painful. Uh, and yet so filled with hope. And so is it true that they, I mean, what, what the byline is, is that the troubles officially, <laughs> air quotes I'm doing here, ended in 1998, and yet that's not the case at all, really. No. No, no. I mean, there's still quite a lot of paramilitary activity, and there are death threats on security forces, and there are bomb scares a lot, and there were huge riots over the summer, and there's contention about what flag, and there's, it, it's it's very very hard, um, and because they didn't have a truth and reconciliation, um, you know, they didn't have a truth commission, so there's no closure, and people hold their hurts very, very close. It's very hard for them to release it, and it gets passed on to the next generation and the next generation. So that's what we've been trying to intersect. And this last piece that that we just premiered Thursday that we're on tour with right now is called Sanctuary because we wanted to try to, to, you know, after doing three projects, that really focused on the troubles and bringing people together who had been so deeply impacted. We wanted to look at where have people found oasis of peace, um, where have people found sanctuary, and it's not only people from Northern Ireland, but people who've come from other countries at war who are asylum seekers in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's been really wonderful for me to be able to just focus as a there's a part of the of the show where people just look in each other's eyes. They just sit sit on the floor and 
drink each other in. And um, that to me is one of the most beautiful things. Like how open can we be? How much can we really look at each other and see, you know, where where can we become each other? Mm. That's so beautiful. It, it And it feels to me, although I don't have any qualifications in the field of neuroscience, that by, pre, uh, by providing the opportunity for what we might call a creative platform to lean towards, lean into, um, there, I wonder if there's some form of signal um, that sort of uh, dismantles some of, of the trauma that might be experienced within you know, the initial incident and, and, and then the, you know, the limbic, literal limbic responses to how, how we deal with it thereafter. Um, the I think so. I really do. I mean, one of the women in this project is, is an asylum seeker from Somalia who, you know, was, you know, family members were killed or her children, you know, had away from her. She's been, she was raped, you know, it's just horrendous, horrendous story. And she, she describes being, you know, just in her flat for, for years on end, um, barely able to come out, um, crying all the time. And that because of this project, she she just feels like she wants to share her story. She feels mm-hmm. so much love. And she actually described the other day our group as her tribe. She said, you're my tribe now. I never thought I'd find a tribe in Belfast. And for her, tribe is really the word. I mean, she's from a minority tribe in Somalia. And um, this 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 is as big as it gets for her to say that. So I, I see the transformation. You see the relaxation, um, the sense of surrender. And I, I've been having them do a lot of catching and falling and catching each other and carrying each other. And just mm. that kind of physical surrender with each other is so beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, we have uh, quite a few more questions from our live dialogue circle, so I'm going to go ahead and open up for another one. Okay, so I'll just say, um, Patrick, we need to remove some of the sound in your background in order to dialogue uh, for me to open up your mic because that that was uh, your mic being opened up. So if you can remove the sound there a little bit, we'll come back to you. Thank you. Welcome, Lynn. You're live. Hi, Molly, and hi, Taya. Um, It's just been so incredible. listening to you both describe your processes and I wanted to go Taya into um, something that you had discussed earlier which is the complexity Um, and that place I just know from my own experiences with going through a transformative um, process um, and certainly other experiences in my own life um, there is a place of confusion and um, complexity which you described and um, I don't know if I'm articulating it well enough but um, um, in your work that you've done and I'm thinking about what Molly said earlier about that that, um, the family whose uh, daughter had been hurt by her mother um, is there any place in your work in any of the work you've done so far where you are addressing those places where this can't heal or we can't see this 
um, anything within in that place of complexity, if I'm making any sense. I, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering this in the way that you want, so stop me if I'm going in the wrong direction. Um, I think sometimes just naming that which seems impossible actually is the beginning of something. Um, when I was working in Poland, I was working with prisoners in Poland, I worked with a man who had killed his wife, his daughter, and his wife's mother. And um, obviously, he, he just, there was no way we could put him publicly on stage, but his story was told by his cellmate. And there was something about just shining the light on the, on the darkness and naming it and bringing it forward that actually feels a little bit like a relief, like that's the first step when naming it. Even if all I can name is that hard, broken place inside of me. Uh, um, you know, girls in Poland that were runaway girls living on the streets, I remember one of them saying she couldn't share her story, but she could describe the story. She could say, my story has holes in it. My story is black. My story is shattered, you know. Um, and that's a start. You know, uh, so I guess I always feel like we can't always get to what may be the kernel. We can't get through all of it. But even if you say, this is a maze, I'm in the middle of a maze or a web and I can't find the center, but you, you start to own it. You start to make image, talk about the imagery with it, work with imagery, soften towards it. That's a start. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yes, it does. Um, it definitely does. And I'm, I'm interested in how that very thing in the, in the particular work that you do affects audiences. Um, and I'm just, so you, you answered that question because it's almost as if it's an undercurrent um, that's taken in through a certain process by naming it. So thank you. You're welcome. Mm, thank you, Lynn. Wonderful question. I'm going to go ahead and try Patrick again. Patrick, uh, you're live, and it sounds like your sound is much better. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much, Molly. And I was, I was really touched by hearing your story. I hadn't heard your personal journey yet. So uh, I have a deeper connection with now with why it is that you're involved in this work. So that was helpful for me to understand you. And I live in Austin, mm. Texas, and I've been studying the work of Dominic Barta that you mentioned quite a little while, and he's a colleague and friend of mine. And uh, and I just wanted to mention that, as well as your question about the neurology of it. For me, there's something that healing is a process. And so a process, you know, clearly has a beginning and sometimes has a clearly defined middle. But this, this healing process doesn't ever seem to be through. Uh, finished for me. It seems to be something that's ongoing. I can get a, a little bit better understanding of it and a little bit of deeper connection with myself and others for a while. And then I find that I continue need to, to go back to the spring again, to be revitalized so that I can, you know, reach out to others and find that strength. And there are many ways, many symbolic ways and many real ways in which we can uh, call that healing power back into our lives again. And so that was one thing, the second thing. And then the third thing was Dr. Uh, Rick Hansen's got a new book out that's called Hardwired for Happiness. 
and in that he mm. speaks to, he speaks to the neurological aspects of healing and, and getting better, mainly on an individual level. And uh, the the thing that he talks about that is for me that was important is to realize that our our brain was designed to make sure that uh, we find lunch rather than we are lunch. And so this, uh, huh. this, <laughs> this, this kind of this, this uh, bias of the brain to make sure that we're always safe and to, and to not trust and to, you know, really find a clan that we can have some kind of trust in. So, uh, I guess I just, again, with this process of healing for me is that recognizing our own brain's bias, what is it that we can do that goes about to over, to compensate for that bias and to help us connect with others and ourselves? And there seems to be so many beautiful ways out there. The stories that I'm healing now, hearing now about doing this in, in, in theater and in personal lives and in all kinds of ways. So I'm just really inspired and I wanted to add that information. And uh, that's mm-hmm. kind of about it. If, if, if either of you have any kind of responses that you'd like to make about that, I'm grateful to listen for a while. Thank you, Wally. Mm. Thank you, Patrick. That was, uh, it was beautiful to hear that. I, I completely agree with you about the healing being a continual process. And it's actually really Wonderful to hear you say that, so thank you. Mm. And thank you also, Patrick, and I just would like to share, it reminds me of the work of Franz de Waal and the, you know, the studies around empathy. So if, if anyone who's uh, with us today or on the archive has not uh, become familiar with Franz de Waal, I highly recommend his work. And on that note, um, Taya, we are getting close to... Uh, closing today, but before we go into the last few minutes here, um, or as we do, let's talk just a little bit more about your new book um, that mm. that came out this year. I'd like to hear more about it. Uh, I'm sure others would, and again, certainly it's out there in circulation and ready for purchase. So I, I know I got my copy recently, <laughs> and I'm I'm waiting for it to arrive. So good, good. It's um it's really a chronicle of the 27 years that I've been doing theater of witness, and it weaves my own story in with what I sort of gleaned as being the what I call the 12 guiding principles of this work, which is you know things like um, to to not to be willing to not know, to bear witness, to listen with the ears of your heart, you know uh, that, that's a lot of those and. Um, go through the different projects and describe them and the people and there's excerpts of the scripts and I think I think it really gives a really full sense of the power of this work and in with a lot of different populations so um, I've been really um, really pleased with it and I think what I'd love to say is the thing that I love to do more than anything in the entire world right now is to do book readings I love to go places and read excerpts from this and talk about the projects and meet people and listen to their stories. Mm. So um, I'll be moving back to the States in June, and if there's any opportunities to go places, I just lo- I love to read from this book. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's my own medicine. Uh, oh, 
Well, I can see why. I know why. Yeah. We've felt yeah. it today. And uh, that actually leads into an important question regarding, uh, first of all, how to connect with you further beyond this time together today. And also, is there a way for folks to stay in touch with you that, you, that um, would allow them the ability to learn more about either bringing the theater to their area or somehow um, do, you, you know, do you have other satellite programs that might be in the future um, here in the United States or, or otherwise? Well, it's so interesting. I'm just beginning to do a lot of mentoring here, and I've got a lot of students from Europe coming mm -hmm. to work with me here. Um, and I, I finally feel like I'm ready to move into that mentoring position, and I've got some extraordinary practitioners. And I'm coming back. I, I know my time here is finished, so I'm going to come back in June to the States, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I am completely open to all opportunities I would love to be teaching, love to be doing book readings. I, I'm also very interested in working with veterans, um, returning especially after working with survivors of war here. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I sort of, you know, and I'll be 64 when I come back and I'm entering a new phase. So I, I, I'm open to all possibilities. And you can reach me through my website, theaterofwitness.org, the, the ER one. But you can also reach me by email, and it's Taya Tova, T-E-Y-A-T-O-V-A, at AOL.com. And I love to hear from people. Mm. Well, it's just been extraordinary to be with you today, Taya. And Thank to... you. Likewise. I, I had no idea how amazing you are. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Uh, I feel Thank the you. same about you and, and uh, the same about all of you the members of this circle and encouraging you all to stay in touch. I love hearing feedback. I love getting recommendations for speakers and for future guests, of course. So if you'd like to stay in touch with me, my email is molly, M-O-L-L-Y, at peacealliance.org. Thanks to the Peace Alliance for their co-sponsorship of this ongoing series. Join us in the coming weeks. We normally convene on Thursdays, 5 p.m. Pacific. This coming week's session is going to feature a great conversation with Wanda McCaslin. We'll be looking at indigenous justice practices and how they inform the current restorative justice movement in the United States. Again, Taya, it's been a deep heartfelt honor. Uh -huh. uh, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all. You've been tuning in to Restorative Justice on the Rise. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.